This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Sam Adams, the senior editor at Slate. Um, and today I am joined in Toronto by Adam Naiman, who is the author of Showgirls, It Doesn't Suck, and a new book on the oeuvre of the Coen brothers entitled This Book Really Ties the Films Together. Unfortunately, we are not talking about Showgirls today, but we do have Adam on to talk about The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the new movie from uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen. As always in spoiler specials, we're going to be discussing the entire plot in detail, so if you haven't seen the film and hate spoilers, beware. If you have seen the film, or if you like spoilers, you have come to the right place. Adam, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Sam. All right. So this is, uh, sometimes we have to, I put a lot of thought into like how to sort of structure this, the spoiler specials. Um, in this case, it's a six part anthology. So I think the most obvious way to go through it is just to talk about, uh, the parts individually and, yeah. um, and then crossover as we see fit, because there's, as we're going to be talking about a lot, there's a lot of interplay between these, um, different, the six different stories in this movie. And that's something that uh, I think you're very well, maybe uniquely qualified to talk about, because as you talk about in the book, I mean, the Coens are filmmakers who really circle around a lot of sort of similar themes and images and even kind of, you know, set pieces and plot elements um, throughout their different films. And when you have what's effectively six short films yoked together like this, those similarities are even more um, obvious and, and in some cases very clearly intentional. Yeah, I mean, there's resonances and echoes and connections between the episodes. And um, as I've watched it a couple of more times, some of those have been clearer. But then it even kind of, you know, spirals outward into connections to their other films, particularly, I think, and I don't know if this is where we start talking about it, if we come back to it, but um, particularly their adaptation of True Grit. There are a number of, uh, of details in Ballad of Buster Scruggs that are both very, very tied to the Cohen's script for True Grit, but also more generally to the work of uh, the the novelist Charles Portis. Um, maybe when we get to talking about the third episode, we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But definitely, yeah. there's lots of uh, connections. Yeah, I mean, it's as you're sitting through. I mean, you could almost, you know, I don't think it's quite this this reductive, but I almost feel like you could sort of you you could pin each you know segment to you know, a, a particular Cohen's film. Um, but, you know, it's obviously not, I don't think that's really their intention, but just because I think they're very, um, in some ways consistent. And I, and I think I would say very kind of intuitive artists in a way, which is not a word people often use to describe <laughs> the Cohen's because they seem so sort of, their films are so sort of often very kind of, you know, stylistic looking forward and very um, referential, but I also feel like there's a lot of, particularly on the level of kind of structure and theme, there's a lot of things in there that um, I think only only come to artists when you're working in a way that's both very technically accomplished and very kind of intuitive and unconscious. Sure, which is why when they, and this is not just a personal opinion, it's a kind of an industry opinion of them, when they seem to dissemble a little bit in interviews or play things close to the vest, you can, on the one hand, kind of roll your eyes when they talk about, like, uh, you know, in Inside Lewin Davis, how we threw a cat in there because the movie was boring, and you sort of say, well, that's clearly not true. But on the other hand, when they say we arrive at these things intuitively, we don't think of these as connections between the films. You know, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that. All right, well, let us begin at the, at the beginning with the titular anthology segment, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, this stars Tim Blake Nelson, um, who in another kind of intra-Cohen connection is returning from A Brother Where At Thou. And in this, he plays a sort of 
legendary uh, Western gunslinger called Buster Scruggs, um, also known as the San Saba Songbird, if you want to stay on his good side. Um, Buster basically kind of shoots his way through a bar, makes his way into a kind of saloon where poker is being played, um, kills another person there, kills a third person in a gunfight, and then is eventually killed himself and is kind of taken up into heaven uh, singing. Um, so th this is... You know, a good place to talk about the Coens' attitude towards the Western, also towards um, violence, which there's a really kind of interesting back and forth in this where it's the character is very kind of the sort of funny, like comic exaggeration. But the, the, the segment kind of also makes sure that the violence is kind of underlined and sufficiently kind of, you know, bloody and, and weighty in certain extents. And then you have the whole element of um, him just kind of bursting into song. Um, which, you know, tells you right at the beginning that this is not, this is going to be a sort of one of the more over the top, um, entries in the Coen's over. So what did yeah. you, cause I, I mean, my, my reaction to this was, I have to, I have to say like, I'm, you know, a huge Coen's aficionado, but I don't love all their movies equally. And this, this one really kind of got the movie off on the wrong foot for me. And I thought I was going to be in for kind of a rough ride. And I think there are other segments that I like better, but this is definitely more in the kind of you know, hyper-stylized, tongue-very-firmly-in-cheek mode that they use sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's terrific. And I think that um, it absolutely is the hyper-stylized, tongue-in-cheek mode that they work in. It's probably the most flat-out cartoony, um, you know, passage that they've had since since Raising Arizona, which, to go back to your sort of... Um, your scheme at the beginning that maybe each episode connects to one of the Cohen's previous films. It's interesting to think about this one with with Raising Arizona, because in Raising Arizona, there's this essentially sympathetic bond that forms between us and the Nicolas Cage character in voiceover, right? We're sort of complicit with him as a repeat offender and a stick-up artist and someone who kind of can't break out of this cycle of, of, of criminality, but we see that it's pretty innocent. And, you know, Buster Scruggs has that same complicit address to us through Tim Blake Nelson, but there's something about the way that Nelson plays him from the beginning that's quite dead-eyed and quite hollow, and you don't actually really feel much kinship with this guy. Um, and I mentioned the cartooniness because in its construction, it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I mean, he even um, brushes dust off himself when he walks into the first canteen like Bugs Bunny does and the way he's referring to other characters directly and how he's going to handle these these shootouts. And I find that it's quite a daring opening because it's it's going through those tropes in such a distanced, such a detached, such a kind of cynical way. And it's introducing the main theme of the whole piece, which is death, also in a sort of distance, detached way. But then with these little flickers of something else, like after Buster dispatches uh, Clancy Brand's character, Surly Joe, and he leads the whole bar in this really vile sing-along. Like uh, there's this line, I think, humankind he frowned upon, but that now his face is gone. Like this really celebratory song about Joe's death. Uh, you see Joe's brother coming in. And there's something about the way that those shots are acted and rhythmed where they're just so out of sync with the surrounding sing-along. And there's like a, even a little bit of sting to this really cartoony, violent death. And the shots of the corpse on the ground are actually quite horrifying. So I think that the way that tones are being mixed in there, some people might find it cavalier or find it uneven. I think it's really daring. And then topped off with the, I think it's a Marty Robbins song, the angel trades his spurs for wings and this elegaic feeling of him floating into heaven. You do find yourself asking the question, why does this guy go to heaven? And it's troubling to me. Right. Well, he starts off in this kind of classically, you know, kind of, campy sort of Roy Rogers singing cowboy mode. Yeah. There's even a shot from inside the inside of his guitar out. And he just seems to be this, you know, extremely kind of, you know, genial cowpoke. Um, and then five minutes later, he's murdered half a dozen men in a bar. Um, there's the, those really striking lines in the, the Surly Joe song, which he kind of composes. It says, you know, your frowning days are done because basically he doesn't have a face anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there are, and there are the shots that you mentioned where it's just kind of cutting away to his, his brother kind of, you know, picking his bloodied, you know, powder scorched face up off the floor and wailing in despair. And there's, you know, a little bit of comic exaggeration to that, but it's also, they make sure that you're seeing kind of the blood and the gore 
there as well. And this this character is kind of a psychopath. He is sort of a cross between H.I. McDonough and Anton Chigurh. Yeah, and you have Nelson's acting making that possible, right? Because there's just something about his affect that's quite dead. It's it's like charming in quotes, right? And, right. you know, I think also, I don't know what you thought of this, Sam, but the the way it introduces not just the theme of death, but more just this kind of fatalistic vibe when he has the fight with the other gunslinger and loses, you know? And you, you realize that the poker hand that he didn't play, the aces and eights or the dead man's hand, and that his time has come and it comes with this kind of acceptance, you kind of want to laugh at it or shrug it off because, again, it's so cartoony. I mean, he literally, like Bugs Bunny, grows a harp and wings and floats to heaven. But this idea of circularity and that there's always going to be a faster gun and that, you know, when your time comes, your time comes, I find that kind of hard to laugh off. This segment makes it maybe easier than the other ones do, but that's just because it comes first. And so I think it's a gesture within a structure of escalation as the movie goes on. Right. I mean, you have this character who really kind of, you know, laughs at death and is kind of using, you know, the, in the, the Surly Joe's brother challenges him to a duel. Um, Buster Struggs shoots off his fingers one yeah. by one while he's kind of keeping up this running patter about kind of what a you know slick gunslinger he is but you see this man with these you know increasing number of bloody stumps on his hand um screaming at that and and i mean there is a real kind of deliberate tonal collision here i mean one of my favorite moments in in the movie is when um buster is again spoiler um shot directly through the head um doesn't realize it at first and he pulls off his hat um and the sound when his hat comes off sounds a little bit like when you, you know, sort of uns- unscrew a bottle cap. There's this <laughs> kind of noise, and it's just, it's the most ridiculous thing. But then, you know, you also see there's a kind of scorched hole in the front of the hat, and then a kind of another hole in the back with kind of blood and a little bit of brain matter back there. And it does, even in this ridiculous context, really kind of bring home, um, you know, what a bullet to the brain means. Well, and it, and it suggests that they're paying a bit of affectionate homage to their pal Sam Raimi, right? Because some of those gore effects are, uh, are, are similar to The Quick and the Dead, which is itself a Western pastiche. But, right. um, you know, uh, even again in my book, I talk a lot about the importance of circles in, in the Cohen's filmography. And so at the end of Buster Scruggs, you have these two circles. One is literal, which is this perfect, clean, you know, shot that's gone through his head. And then the other is more figurative, which is the subject of the song that there's always going to be a faster gun kind of coming around. And we should introduce uh, within our within our, our discussion that the whole movie is framed as a series of um, chapters in like a book of Wild West tales. And if you're watching this on Netflix, once you've seen it once, I highly recommend that you freeze frame the pages where some of the text is written, the ostensible text of these stories, because they are beautifully written. And in the Buster Scruggs one, you sort of see how told in a different way with a different set of language, it's quite a fatalistic and kind of sobering story at the end if you read the way that the Ballad of Buster Scruggs chapter one ends on the page. It's a very layered presentation, but it's right. interesting. And yes, and not to, not to throw in a plug for the website as well, but also, and we'll talk to these when we get to um, some of the individual segments, but but two of the later ones, um, the girl who got rattled or the gal who got rattled, and All Gold Canyon are also sort of based on uncredited on on short stories by other writers. And um, yeah. Matthew Desim went and, and put those up on the site, and those are really interesting to look at as well because there's a whole and there's a whole history of often uncredited um, ad- like adaptations in quotes um, throughout their over as well. Um, one point we should sort of focus on in this segment before we move on to the next one is um, in Buster Scruggs' opening monologue, he's talking about um, his, uh, his the monikers, the sobriquets um, that have been given to him. And there are some that he likes more than others, and he takes particular exception to one that is on the wanted poster for him, which is uh, the misanthrope. Um, and he, he that's one that really sticks in his craw, and he explains... Uh, this is a quote, I don't hate my fellow man. Even when he's tiresome and surly and tries to cheat at poker, I figure that's just the human material. And him that finds in it cause for anger and dismay is just a fool for expecting better. Um, now, as you deal with in the book, and as is, the debate has stirred up again in the last couple of weeks as this movie's been in theaters and making its way to Netflix, um, misanthrope is an exceptionally loaded word in the context of the Coens over and and that's a very, I think, self-conscious 
moment in in the film there pushing back against that do you want to talk about that in the yeah i'd love i'd love to i mean the cohen's have long been accused and maybe guilty as charged of a certain again we use that word distance or detachment as if that's the whole story i mean there's distance and detachment but i think there's also curiosity and understanding i think that there's misanthropy but i think there's also humanity i i i don't find those things separate out all that easily in their work and i'm sure that they would be the first people to deny that you know having buster scruggs refer to himself as a uh, as not a misanthrope is is not them speaking through him but it, it it is hard to take it any other way especially since by the end he seems to be admitting to a kind of misanthropy right he's like i'm not a misanthrope i don't hate people but if you expect people to be better you know what are you expecting which in a weird backwards way is kind of an admission of that misanthropy or 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 disappointment but you know i would say that um you know, the other important line on that poster right under the misanthrope is it says dead or alive and talking about the connections between the episodes, I think it's really important that that line dead or alive, which is a kind of trope of wanted posters, literally shows up in the dialogue of the final episode as a way of kind of connecting them. And I guess what I'm saying is that that idea of misanthropy at the beginning also goes through a, a series of changes through each episode. Some of these episodes could be seen as being quite cruel. Others, I think, are on the subject of cruelty. And maybe it's just a matter of taste. But if by the end, all you have to say about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is that it's mean, I don't know if you're, I don't, I, 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 I don't know if you're watching it right. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, so the next one to talk about is Near Algodonas, which is the story of a bank robber played by James Franco, who makes an unsuccessful attempt to uh, rob a bank from a teller played by Stephen Root, who has uh, protected himself <laughs> with a variety of pans. Um, he is then uh, knocked out caught and tried while he's unconscious and sentenced to death. Um, that execution does not go as planned. Um, he escapes the noose, um, and then only to, through a you know short series of misadventures, to basically end up condemned again to death for a crime that this time he did not commit, and this time, having not been executed for the crime that he did commit, is killed for the one that he did not commit. So speaking of, of cruel, I think this is this is one of the kind of meaner ones in in the anthology yeah well and narratively as you've pointed out really concisely the patterning is somewhat similar to the man who wasn't there which is in that film you have a character played by billy bob thornton commit a crime which he's never really suspected of and then ultimately be convicted for one that he that he didn't do so you know and in both cases you sort of end on this idea of 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 execution and a depiction of death. But I think that in The Man Who Wasn't There, there's at least the possibility of death as this transcendent experience. In, in, in this episode, um, in quite contrasting to the first episode, death's really brutal and harsh and final and sort of put across with the sound of a rope snapping and a neck breaking. And even if The Ballad of Buster Scruggs had ended after those first two episodes, the contrast in the depiction of death is pretty startling, right? from a right. guy ascending into heaven with a harp to a heavenly cowboy chorus to just blackness as the hood goes and the, the trap door opens. But it's also that last line of the second episode, which when the Franco character is on the gallows, he makes eye contact with a, a young woman in a blue dress, which is like the only color in the entire episode, right? The whole episode is yep. dusty and trail colored. She's got this blue dress. She's very pale. She's very beautiful. And uh, from his point of view, he looks at her and you hear him say, that's a pretty girl. And in that one little line, there's so much about what a lost death is. Like, it's the last thing that he sees. It's very cruel. It's like the symbol of life or hope or desire that's just, you know, a bright about to be taken away from him. I mean, I think this is the weakest of the six episodes, which isn't to say that it's bad. I think it's the slightest of them. But it still has quite a, a powerful follow through in that last moment. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's essentially, uh, this one is essentially kind of a, a long, sort of a long O. Henry story, a little bit kind of yeah. just a long joke, but it's got a really good punchline. Uh, both that line and the one before it, where he's on the gallows next to these <laughs> yeah. other three men, and this older man is next to him and starts sobbing, and Franco just kind of looks over him and goes, first time? Um, yeah. And that's really, you know, such a, a potent theme in the context of the whole movie, which is that, you know, as as many episodes and especially Mortal Remains, the last one's underlined, we are all going to die uh, eventually. And Franco is someone who's already been brought right up to the point where he thought he was going to die. And um, I guess, I guess like Dostoevsky, uh, given a reprieve there and that in a way, even in his last moment, he takes a moment to appreciate this, you know, particular vision of beauty before him. And there is, you know, as close to a lesson as anything you can extract from the Cohen's herb there, yeah. which is... And if, and if I can just plant one seed for conversation, we don't have to talk about it yet, but one of the trials that he survives uh, between, you know, uh, trips to the gallows is um, this attack out in the out on the plane by a, by a war party of Comanche Indians, Comanche Indians. And it is uh, something that comes back in the fifth episode, which, where I think we should give it its more full consideration there. But you know, it's one of those things where, on the one hand, you look at it as a kind of Wild West trope, but then on the other hand, you look at it as a Wild West trope in the context of a movie being made in 2018. So it's uh, it's an interesting way that they're used, kind of just as like a pure peril, you know, like a pure symbol of death that's kind of escaped. And I think that when they come back in the in the fifth episode, that gets complicated further. Yeah, let's come. We will definitely come back to that yeah. later. Um, right now, let us move on to meal ticket. Um, this is the, the third, and I think you know one of one of the best segments of the anthology. Um, this one stars uh, Liam Neeson as a kind of uh, grizzled trail impresario, and Harry Melling, who you may recognize the name, but probably not the person, um, as Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter movies as um, a character, I guess he's in the credits, he's just called Artist. He's also referred to as the wingless thrush. He is this limbless actor who is kind of brought out every night to give a series of, you know, very uh, florid soliloquies drawn from um, Shelley and Shakespeare and the Constitution. Um, And he does this to sort of ever-dwindling crowds until Liam Neeson, who is his handler and the person, you know, responsible for... um, passing the hat, collecting the coins, making a living for both of them, um, unfortunately stumbles on a chicken that knows how to do math um, and realizes that it is cheaper to feed a chicken than a human being. And so um, Harry Melling gets uh, thrown out of the wagon and over a river and Liam Neeson goes on his way with a chicken instead of a person. Um, so I, the, the initial read I saw on this, some of the first uh, kind of Twitter reactions to it, it says, oh, look, it's the Coens commenting on um, selling out to Netflix. You know, this is about art being corrupted by commerce, and eventually commerce will throw you over the edge into the river. Um, I would who imagine the hell, read on this a little the, more complicated hell, than that. Who the hell tweeted that? I mean, you <laughs> I'll know, go find no, them right now. But n- yeah, no. I mean, oh, I shouldn't say no. I mean, if we're going to value the Coens as artists whose work is spacious for interpretation, I mean, I guess you could think that. But no, I mean, I think that again, what you said at the at the top about each episode having a kind of pattern in the Coens. You know, this one's very inside Lewin Davis, right? This is like a a, a really, really morbid uh, expansion on the on F. Marie Abraham's line. I don't see a lot of money here, you know, and that idea of uh, of art kind of at the mercy of the marketplace. But one of the things that I find interesting too that I don't think's been commented on much, and for me, it's the way into the episode, maybe not the way out of it, but the artist in this case is an artist in the sense that he's a vessel for the canon, right? And yep. I think the read that he's this fragile, limbless, helpless figure, it's not so much just that like art is rendered helpless in a commercial marketplace. It's that he's not really creating anything. And as he gives these speeches, totally disconnected from their original context, mixing all these monologues together in a kind of greatest hits, I'm not so sure that we're supposed to think that the, what he's doing is great or feel terrible that the people aren't into it. It begs the question of like, what good is it to hear about Ozymandias or what good is it to even hear the constitution when you're living out on the plane in poverty and there's a hat being passed around, you know, that you're supposed to to pay into for the privilege of being orated at for an hour in the cold. Um, I'm not sure if that's the top layer of interpretation to the episode, but I think that it's there. And I think the relationship between exploiter and exploited is really 
um, is, is really complicated too. I would also just say that when we talk about the chicken, I mentioned Charles Portis. If you note the Charles Portis book, uh, Norwood, I think there's a fortune telling chicken. So that seems to be a connection to the, the author of True Grit. And I also thought very much of, of Werner Herzog. And I think the Coens might actually appreciate what Herzog said about the chicken in Strosek when he said, it's a great symbol, but of what I don't know. And uh, I feel the same way about the chicken in, in Buster Scruggs. Like I'm tempted to say the chicken is Trump or the chicken is Netflix or the chicken is whatever, but I think it's way more elusive than that. Right. I mean, I feel like if you've watched, um, certainly Lewin Davis or, or Barton Fink is definitely a movie I think a lot about watching this. If you've, if you've watched the Coen brothers, or even if you just watch this segment closely, I mean, Liam Neeson's performance, um, this, you know, and it's really a tribute. This is a, I've seen people refer to this as a wordless segment, which there are actually a ton of words in it, but there's virtually no dialogue. I think there's yeah. one actual exchange of sentences in the, and it's between um, Liam Neeson and a prostitute. Um, yeah. The two of, he and the artist com, um, communicate entirely in kind of gestures and looks, but it's really a tribute to, you know, even an actor as well known and sort of, you know, well kind of tapped out as Liam Neeson that the Coens can find something new and, and, sort of perfect to do with him. There's just, a, there's a real complexity to his, to his performance that kind of undermines the idea that he's just, um, you know, kind of an exploiter in this relationship, even at the end when he's standing on this um, railroad trestle, you know, he throws a rock over to kind of test the fall. And there's a really kind of complicated, interesting look on his face. It's not, oh good, now I can ditch this guy and keep the money for myself while literally paying my accomplice chicken feed. Um, and, it's, and it's, as you mentioned, I mean, there's no reason to, to interpret what the artist is doing in this as some sort of, um, you know, pure artistic expression. I mean, the Coens work in an industrial medium. You know, you cannot make a movie, certainly the way they do, without someone giving you at least several million dollars to do it. And I think they're very much aware of that. And as much... And I don't think they've ever made a movie or would make a movie without some kind of equivalent of a math you know, a math uh, calculating capon, I guess, as they call it, or the Peckin Pythagorean in it. I mean, they are entertainers as well as anything else. And I think they're very much aware of that. Yeah, they, they, they are. And they're absolutely, you know, in, in A Brother Where Art Thou, which is so indebted to Preston Sturges and Sullivan's Travels, you know, they're allergic to this idea of art as something important, or if not art as important, art as self-serious, you know? So when they have the chicken uh, entertaining the crowds, I'm not sure that they necessarily are treating it with contempt. I think that at their best, they actually have a healthy kind of wonder and awe for certain things. But, you know, they also um, deal with fads in a lot of their movies, whether it's the hula hoop and the Hudsucker proxy or the, the song in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And they sort of suggest that, you know, in the end, the will of the crowd, like you kind of can't go against it because it was eternally thus. And so I like the idea that the artist is reciting these classics, which have their value in their moment, whether it's the Middle Ages or the, the foundation of America with the Constitution or the Gettysburg Address. But um, even if they're things that are going to endure, they're not always going to line up with the fashion of their exact second. I mean, I have a hard time hearing him invoking the American Constitution or Lincoln over and over again, first of all, without thinking of the forged Lincoln letter in Tarantino's Hateful Eight. Uh, a metaphor that I don't think Tarantino knew how powerful that was going to be when he made that movie in 2015. Right. And I also just have a hard, and I also just have a hard time not hearing it, thinking about the question of whether the Coens mean this as a political gesture, which is another way they often get in trouble with film critics because they're seen as not being left-leaning enough. But I think that in all the openness and spaciousness of interpretation here, it is fair to take away some kind of comment on the current state of affairs, maybe somewhere. I mean, I think you go, I mean, you go from, you know, gaze on my work, he mighty and despair through, you know, various statements of, uh, you know, promise and um, principle in the founding documents of this country. And then you end up with, you know, Puck's monologue from A Midsummer Night's Dream, Our Revels Now Are Ended. And that is, it's sort of a, you could, one way to look at his act is kind of a soup to nuts history of the United States from birth to death. Um, yeah. so, you know, the Coens, I think would probably slap me on the hand for even suggesting that, but I think it's something that runs through it. And, and again, um, some of this will, will kick down the road to the gal that got rattled, but I think that that it plays into that as well. Um, so let us move on to, um, all gold Valley, which is another one of the best ones in this and a very kind of, 
um, almost uncharacteristically sweet um, thing for the Coens, at least until the end. This is a very short plot synopsis in this. Tom Waits, who amazingly has never played a grizzled prospector before, (laughs) plays a grizzled prospector who finds this kind of sylvan, untroubled valley um, in the middle of nowhere, um, decides that there must be, does some panning for gold, decides that there must be a pocket, a Mr. Pocket there, um, spends probably 10 minutes of screen time just digging in the ground and panning for dirt and digging holes and being Tom Waits, and that somehow is more than enough to pass the time. He finally finds Mr. Pocket in there um, as the kind of Aaron Copeland-like strings swell on the soundtrack. This is the moment of great triumph. Um, he then gets shot by a sort of young, surly thug who has been presumably watching him dig for this gold and waiting for this old man to do all the work so he can then swoop in and steal it. Um, Tom Waits plays dead until he jumps down into the hole, turns around, and shoots him several times. Um, then he heals and takes the gold and gets on out of that valley, and the deer and the fish and the owl that all and the butterflies that all flew away when the strange man came to the valley return and order has been restored. All right, so what do you make of All Gold Canyon? Um, you, you know, the the casting of weights is one of those things that it's it's so on the nose, you wonder if it doesn't just break the nose. But, you know, he's pretty good. Um, I mean, I take it, uh, you know, to be another one of their very, very unique references when the Mr. Pocket thing, I try to remember where it came from. And I was reading someone's piece who reminded me that that's the name of the, uh, the protagonist's father in Great Expectations. It's Mr. Pocket. <laughs> Pip's, yes. Pip's, Pip's dad. And so when you, when you look at the episode through the lens of, this Dickensian lens of great expectations, even though Dickens has nothing to do with the American frontier or the gold rush, it's sort of a, it's a funny reference, right? Because this nameless prospector has these great hopes, even though interestingly, he's towards the end of his life. And it really doesn't seem to be so much about fortune as just kind of like accomplishing something. It's a very process based episode. And it never really seems when he gets attacked and then kills the guy that he's necessarily mad that he's going to have his money stolen, though that's part of it. It's just like he does all the work and he's furious that this guy's kind of come along and tried to take him, take it from him. It kind of inverts the first episode where in the first episode, the idea is someone younger and hungrier and stronger comes along and kills you and you're done. And here he's more of like a symbol of self-reliance and resilience. He's a bit like the Daniel Day-Lewis character in There Will Be Blood, though not as grandiloquent. And we also never see him kind of in his, in his, in his day job outfit. But, um, you know, people really love this episode. I like it. I think it's beautifully made and shot. It It's actually one of the ones that does the least for me, even watching the, 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 the film three times. And maybe it's because I think it's slightly out of step with the fatalistic vibe of the whole piece. But I also think that maybe that's quite purposeful. And of well, course, I mean, it also is, when it is the only segment in the entire film whose protagonist survives at the end of yes. it, depending on how you read the mortal remains, I guess, maybe the three yeah. people that are technically alive. At the end, they certainly seem like they're about to go into hell. But, you know, Tom Waits unambiguously survives the end of this and is the only kind of main character in the movie who makes it out of their segment unscathed. For sure. Which begs the question of, well, what is actually lost? Because you're not supposed to grieve the death of this shitty guy who is trying to steal his fortune. So you do look at the landscape and see that it has been somewhat changed and mutilated by his presence. And then I think the last line or one of the last lines is he says, don't worry, I'll be back. And so you get the sense that this one guy's living very proportionately. He even puts the owl eggs back after stealing them because he doesn't want to upset the balance too much. But once he's been there, more people are going to come. And you see that as a sort of foundational moment of the despoiling of the landscape, maybe. Yes. I mean, and it is, it's also a segment that kind of speaks to, you know, particularly the one before it, which is about um, kind of the association of, of commerce and death. Um, and this is a, sure. a person about someone, you know, an, another attempted murder in the service of um, Mammon. Um, but Tom Waits kind of escapes it um, just by by playing dead and singing Mother McCree. Um, so let us let us move on to the gal who got rattled, which is, I think, the, the longest and arguably most complicated of segments in the movie. Oh, yeah. This one stars Zoe Kazan as Alice Longabau, who's a young woman who is kind of riding a wagon train um, to Oregon with her brother, the uh, rapidly deceased Jefferson Mays. 
Um, so she is then left in charge of this wagon with um, no money and no prospects um, and is kind of, uh, but sort of falls under the, the eye of, of Billy Knapp, one of the kind of cowboys who was kind of running the wagon train. Um, they fall, if not in love, at least see that it's to their mutual advantage to get married and you th we think we're going to have a happy ending. Unfortunately, uh, Alice Longabell then wanders off the trail in search of her brother's dog, um, falls prey to a um, sort of roving war party of Indians, um, manages to escape their attack, but in her fear that they are going to capture her and do horrible things to her, um, puts a bullet into her own head. Um, and that is the end of the segment. Um, so yeah. you, you mentioned the, the representation of the, the Comanche in this, which I know is something you did a very interesting roundtable on for um, Now Toronto. Um, so talk to me about what sort of your thoughts on that aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, one the one character you didn't mention, which is fine because you're not a human character, but is uh, Alice's late brother's dog, whose name quite hilariously is President Pierce. And, uh, you know, Franklin Pierce, my understanding, I'm not a student of American history and I'm here in a studio in, in Toronto, but uh, he was uh, he was afraid of the abolitionist movement, correct? Yes. He was well, that's, of, uh, that is he also was... my understanding and I have done probably no more research on that than you. He's not a yeah. especially well-known or well-remembered president. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's not, but he's, I think he's sort of seen as someone whose policies kind of set the stage for a kind of civil war. And so when you have this dog as the thing that lures the Zoe Kazan character because uh, Billy Knapp has failed to put the dog out of its misery earlier. And the dog is on the one level, like a symbol of her brother and her brother's failure. Right. And he's one of the Cohen, the Cohen's have this great way of using animals symbolically, these kind of wandering creatures like the cat and Lewin Davis. So, you know, my point being that it is the dog who makes her stray from the trail of manifest destiny and sort of get ambushed and cornered. And then the way the scene ends uh, pays off the title of the piece, The Gal Who Got Rattled, which is it is not the Comanche who kill her. Uh, it is an act of, um, you know, suicide of self-preservation because she's had her imagination fueled by the old trail hand about what the, the natives are going to do to her if they take her alive, which is dialogue that is not like taken from the searchers, but it's very much similar to the sort of stuff that John Wayne says in that film. And so I find those two elements, the invocation of Pierce and a kind of like American racism and xenophobia uh, in that period, and the fact that it ends with suicide by someone who's terrified with access to guns and ends up harming herself and nobody else, um, that really then frames the depiction of the of the natives in the piece in an interesting way and and kind of not balances out, but kind of complicates the idea that it's just a simple retrograde racist depiction, which I should also say, like, it kind of is, right? Yeah, I mean, she is a kind of ultimately a victim of, of her own fear. And um, her yeah. brother, who who owned the dog um, and named him President Pierce, is described as as a doe face, which is, have this sort of meaning of, of in my very brief research in this, had a meaning of both kind of being spineless, um, but also kind of a northerner with southern sympathies in the lead up to the exactly. Civil War. Um, and he's also described as being a follower of President Pierce. And it's literally because Zoe Kazan's character follows President Pierce, the dog, away from the wagon train that she then is kind of overtaken by this racist fear of the Indians and and ends up killing herself rather than risk falling into their hands. For, for for sure. And when and so, so there's there's all that, which can also sound both on the Cohen's part and on the critics' part as a really teetering rationalization for what is kind of just on the surface, like kind of a very ugly means of depiction, right? Um, and I think that right. is, it, is, it just, is it like meta racist, you know, I mean, cause they're not actually, we're not actually seeing any more of the Comanche no. than what she sees of them. All we see of them are these kind of, yeah. um, you know, murderous creatures in long shot. I mean, they're, you know, the, they're only a couple of close-ups in the entire film and they're used for are, shock effect, not to bring us any closer to the characters. No. And who are, and who are mowed down by the heroic trail hand. Uh, you know, who actually has very little harm done to him, but kills a bunch of them and quite callously, much like Buster in the first episode, you see him shoot a man in the back while he's down on the ground. And Buster's case, it's a canteen owner. And in the, the, the Mr. Arthur case, it's this, it's this, this dead, this dying Comanche. 
I think that it's not something that's going to be solved. And I think the Cohen's treatment of race in their largely white movies is, is an ongoing issue. If you take them seriously as artists and revere them and having just written a book on them, I do. It doesn't do people any favors to ignore it. But it also doesn't do people favors to sort of simplify it, as I've seen some people do on Twitter and as I've seen when critics have addressed it at all. Many critics aren't bothering to talk about this in their pieces at all. But when they do, they're sort of just saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I think it matters. But I also actually think it matters to the Coens. And there's a big difference between the way that scene plays out without the Pierce framing stuff and without it ending in suicide uh, if it had played out, you know, without those two without those two elements. Right. And it is and it is you know, and this again could be a kind of circular get out of jail free car, but this is not just a Western story. I mean, these are a series of Western stories about the stories that we have told ourselves about the West. I mean, it is, you know, literally framed as chapters in a book that you see somebody turning the pages of and hear the sound of them rocking in their rocking chair as they're doing so. So, I, you know, I saw somebody suggest, you know, what if this, you know, I there's a sort of version of this movie that I imagine I love the six stories and there's a version in my head with the seventh story told from a native point of view. Um, and I like that as a concept, but it would also really just break the whole idea of the movie because there is just no space in this world as there has often been no space in the conception of that time in our history for for that point of view i mean that would have to be and and should be and has been in some cases but needs to be in many more that has to be kind of a different movie well and it begs made by a different filmmaker sure and i'm only thinking of the connection because of zoe kazan and it's not to impugn meek's cutoff by kelly reichert which is a movie that i really like which has a lot in common with this episode. It's a wagon train, it's Oregon, it's Zoe Kazan. And if you've seen Meek's Cutoff, you know it features a, an essentially sympathetic and also mysterious and unknowable Native American character who's used in a way to show who we're supposed to like in the movie because the Bruce Greenwood character is a racist and doesn't like him, so it makes him bad. And the Michelle Williams character has a little more faith that this, that this captured Native might lead them the right way and that makes her good. And in the roundtable that I did in Toronto uh, with a couple of, of, of Indigenous film artists, we sort of talked about, you know, the Coens have no good intentions, but they're also not pandering. Whereas in a movie like Meek's Cutoff, you could maybe argue the audience is being flattered somewhat to sort of feel like they're they're more progressive than the period or, or, or they're more politically correct than the period. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'd argue they're both problematic, but there is something about the Coens' unwillingness to sort of throw a sop to that progressivism or to be politically correct in and of itself as a gesture, as an empty gesture. I, I respect it. I hope that that makes sense what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's complicated and I, I certainly would not, um, you know, quarrel with, with people who, who take no, no. issue with it. Um, I, you know, I think you are to a certain extent meant to take issue with it. I think, you know, the movie throws it into question. It is also still there. Um, you know, one other thing I think is really worth drawing attention to in this segment, um, and I, I sort of was thinking of this a lot as I was watching the movie for the second time last night, is, you know, looking across the Coen's over, I mean, they started off, you know, just casting all these really kind of great, largely unknown actors, and then they got to a point where they were famous enough where they can say, like, hey, George Clooney, you want to make a couple of movies? Um, and George, George Clooney could, and, and there was sometimes kind of less of a sense of discovery watching their movies as they basically got more um, pull with a sort of better known class of actor. But I think this this movie really demonstrates just what masters of casting they are, both in terms of known quantities like like Liam Neeson or, or Tom Waits, even though that one, again, kind of feels like a gimme. And then with actors who you know are not that, that familiar to people who um, you know, aren't able to kind of go see theater in New York that often. There's an actor named um, Bill Heck in this oh, yeah. place, the, the trail hand, and he's just has this kind of marvelous kind of, you know, classic um, sort of, you know, f- like 30s era Western um, good naturedness and the sense of, of basic decency that you really don't don't see in, in films very often. And I think just plays that character with a really um, kind of winning um, kind of a bashedness, but also a real dedication to um, principle without being kind of sappy about it. And, um, I did, you know, I just love him in, in the segment. As yeah. Well. If you're, if, if you, if you're listening, Bill Heck, uh, you're, you're great in that, in that part. And I agree that, um, 
you know, the Coens have this ability to cast sometimes who they want and they sometimes play on star personas. They've definitely done that with Clooney where they don't cast him passively, right? They, they use him. But, yes. uh, you know, they can also nurture some pretty star-making performances. Oscar Isaac and in Inside Lewin Davis is an example. And uh, I, think, I think Bill Heck's terrific. Oh, so let us move on now to the final segment. Um, yeah. Mortal Remains. Um, plot summary of this one, this is basically five people in a stagecoach um, having sort of increasingly disagreeable conversations, and they eventually discover um, that two of the people in the stagecoach, identified as the Englishman and the Irishman, are bounty hunters who are uh, basically have put a dead body on the top of the coach and are bringing it to get paid. Um, and somewhere along the line, the sun starts to go down and you get the feeling more and more that these people are not kind of ending up at a hotel, but are, are basically kind of taking the stage across, across the river Styx somehow. And they sort of seem to get that idea, too. So it becomes very um, morbid and, and frightening and almost this weird kind of ghost story. Um, and then it ends um, with them entering the hotel and closing the doors. And uh, no one knows what happens after that. So this is, I mean, the most sort of nakedly, you know, almost almost pretentious, certainly the most kind of naked statement of theme in the entire yeah. movie. And I think there is a, a version of this one where you could almost frame the entire thing with the stagecoach ride and then have all the other five stories be things that, um, you know, tie into it. But it does to steal um, the subtitle of a rather good book on the Coen's River. It really does kind of tie the whole film <laughs> together. Yeah. Um, so what I do mean... you make of Mortal Remains? You know, when I, I watched the film the other night with uh, with my brother, who's a filmmaker, and uh, he thought that the last episode, again, was very on the nose and that, you know, it wasn't in need of that kind of summation. But I think it has its own pleasures. I think it has this wonderfully calibrated ensemble acting by such a strange ensemble of, of characters, starting with the fact that Saul Rubinek is doing this outrageous accent. And then the more relaxed acting that you have from Brendan Gleeson. It's interesting to see Tyne Daly there. Um, the play of light in the episode is spectacular, you know, the way that uh, it's getting darker and darker, but you get all these different shades of sunlight and color that become more and more funereal as it goes along. And I guess the Cohen movie that I thought of, not because it remotely resembles it in plot or tone, but in illusion is The Lady Killers, particularly the nods to Edgar Allan Poe, because it yeah. has a very Poe-ish texture. Um, if, if you remember in True Grit, Hallie Steinfeld tells the story of the midnight caller at the camp, campfire, not literally a Poe story, but a kind of tale of the uncanny. Or in A Serious Man, the opening story is very much a tale of a midnight caller, the rabbi who knocks on the door in the middle of the night and may or may not be a demon. So the Coens have this kind of like little horror movie subtext that they like to play with. And I find it quite potently deployed in The Mortal Remains. And... I find the sequence where Brendan Gleeson sings, I think it's called An Unfortunate Lad, which has a similar melody to Mother McCree, and this moment of sobriety and quietness as everyone in the stagecoach takes in the implications of this song about death. I, I, I find it quite moving, so I'm glad that they included it. Um, I think that in some ways it's it's maybe a little on the nose, but um, you know it, 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 it works well, and that idea that art is how we experience death as a way of delaying <laughs> having to actually experience it, I, I, I do not think is unprofound. Right. I mean, it is, it is you know, like I said, kind of a bald statement of theme. Um, I think it may say more about me than the movie that I really, that this is one of my favorites. Um, it's sort of like a less, um, way, way less problematic version of The Hateful Eight, where you're just watching people talk in this very enclosed space. Yeah. Um, that song that, that Brendan Gleeson sings, um, has these incredible lines in it about, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a person envisioning their own funeral. And there's this bit about, um, you know, I want all the women to carry roses so that they may not smell me as they go along. Yeah. Um, and the idea that there's this old kind of traditional song that's about like the reason you have roses at funerals is because decaying bodies stink and you need to cover up that scent. Um just, just remind you, I mean, in a way, like how distance we've become from cer certain realities of death, you know, because that is not a smell you will smell at any any modern funeral. And um, but it, it does kind of remind you that, I mean, we're all, you know, no matter how many chemicals they pump, pump us full of after we die, we're all going to decay eventually. And we all have always known that. 
um, and the story that the Englishman, um, another kind of wonderful casting of uh, Jean Joe O'Neill, and that tells the, the sort of the midnight caller story, um, which is presumably at somebody getting killed by answering a knock at the door. And he has this whole monologue about how we tell ourselves the stories and the characters in the stories are us, but they're not us. And it's very important that they're not us because we don't want to end the way they do. Um, and it reminds me of that kind of old saw that, you know, the key to a happy ending is knowing when to stop a story. Uh, because yeah. eventually if you go on long enough, the, the people die. And this is a story that does, that none of these stories stop before then. They all go on to the end. And in this case, possibly past it. Yeah, and it's the one episode. I mean, the whole thing is framed as a book, as we've said, and they all have these wonderful snatches of text. I think the last one is the most purely literary of all of them. And so if we circle back to the first episode and we suggest that Buster Scruggs himself is a kind of cartoon, and by the end we move from a cartoonish sort of um, atmosphere to a really haunted kind of literary one, you see the just the range that the Coens can kind of play in without ever changing the period, without ever really changing the milieu, without ever really switching up the way the film looks. They sort of go from something very broad and cartoony to something very literary and abstract, and they navigate that within a within a two-hour period. It's really a remarkable bit of control as as writers, I think. Right. I mean, this is not. I think you need to be, you know, fairly well schooled in sort of Coenology to get everything that they're doing. This is not a place that I would suggest that anyone who has never seen a Coen Brothers movie start, um, because yeah. it moves along so fastly. But I think it is, you know, really great summation of all they things, all the things they can do well. Some of the things they they maybe do, you know, less well. But it, it just, as you say, I mean, just the kind of range and the breadth of this. And, and the more I watch it, and I'm, I think I'm going to watch it, you know, at least another couple of times in the next few weeks, um, you know, you really do find the stories kind of interacting with and playing off each other in all sorts of unexpected ways. And it but, makes the whole work so much richer. But remember, Sam, they're, they're, they're so mean, you know? <laughs> They're just, they're so mean. I mean, how can we, how can we like these filmmakers? They're just, they're just mean, you know? Well, we just all have to find our own way. Mis, mi, um, mi, 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 misanthropes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> 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 on that note. On um, that note. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Buster Scruggs. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Slate Spoiler Special. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt, and I'm Sam Adams. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.